Hey there, and welcome to the Multiply Church podcast. Multiply Church exists to glorify God through multiplying disciples in our neighborhoods and the nations. We are so thankful you've decided to utilize this audio resource and pray it will help you develop a more intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. However, this audio resource cannot and should not replace your participation in a local church. Our prayer is that this will simply serve as a supplement to the faithful preaching, teaching, and community you receive within your local church. If you are not involved in a local church, we would love to connect with you. Please visit our website at multiplychurch.church and click connect and fill out our connect form. We will get back with you as soon as possible and would love to have you visit with us on a Sunday morning or become involved in one of our missional communities. Now, let's dig into God's Word. May the Lord bless you and keep you and make His face shine upon you. May He turn His face toward you and give you peace. Thank you for being here this morning. I'm Curtis. I'm one of the elders. Along with John and Zach, and we are thrilled that you would be with us this morning as we're moving into Thanksgiving week. Um, So as I told somebody again this morning, you know, I'm okay, just to reiterate, I'm okay if you sleep, because I find myself when I sit still, I often fall asleep. So it's all right, you don't insult me. Sometimes we don't know how busy we are and how tired our body is, so it's okay, don't feel If you start snoring, I'll just consider it an amen, all right? So let's start with where we're going to end up this morning. And here is our destination that we're heading to. We'll come back over to this at the end. But this is where we're heading to in our study of God's Word this morning. Who irritates you? Now, hopefully you're a unique person and nobody does, so I'll be the first, okay? But who irritates you in your life? You don't have to make an expansive list. You may just find one name. Who irritates you? What do you see in yourself? And then finally, four-squared focus. Four-squared focus. And we'll talk a little bit more about that at the end. But that gives you a full idea of where we're going this morning in our study of the scripture. This is a short letter that John writes, 3 John. John, of course, is one of the 12 followers of Christ that he kept closest. He became the leaders, one of the leaders in the early church. He traveled. This is the same John that wrote the book of Revelation, that wrote the gospel of John. Uh, John, this is the same John that was on the Isle of Patmos. Uh, John is believed to have taken the gospel to many places far into interior of Asia Minor, which is present-day Iraq and northern India and all of these different spots there. So this is the same John. Let's read the scripture together this morning, or you can open your Bible and read with us. The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth, beloved I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. For I rejoice greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed 
you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God, for they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, t talking wicked nonsense against us. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God, and whoever does evil has not seen God. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone, and from the truth itself, we also add our testimony, and you know that our testimony is true. I had much to write to you, <clears throat> but I would rather not write with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon, and we will talk face to face. Peace be to you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends each by name. This letter of uh, John, 3 John, is a clear example that there is nothing new under the sun. In the Old Testament, in the book of Ecclesiastes, that's the theme throughout that entire book of Ecclesiastes, that there is nothing new under the sun. Now, this is a good example of that. Because here you have the early church. And what do you see in that early church? Division. People have said, <clears throat> we want to start a New Testament church here in Meridianville. And I said, well, that's great. We'll have a lot of bruises. Because this is a New Testament church. There's nothing new under the sun. I've often said to John and to Zach, I can name you 60 churches within a 70-mile radius that we could pass in, in the span of an afternoon that all started with a glorious purpose and now are someplace that people are fleeing from. There's nothing new under the sun. What we're seeing here in this early church, you see a group that is focused on that agape love of God that we've talked extensively about. John mentions that word about love of God and love for the fellow believers in the church over and over. That's his favorite word. And you see a group that is agape, self-sacrificing, loving other people in the church. And then you see a man, 
and his group here, Diotrephes, bringing division within the church. <clears throat> as First John, as Third John starts out here in this letter, five times that word agape, self-sacrificing, putting my interest aside for the interest of others, being interested in this person above my own personal interest is used five times about these, these people. The truth is used five times about these people. That they're walking in truth. It's not so important in life what we believe as the truth we live. Now, I don't mean it's grand to just accept false truths and start believing false truths. Let's just go from the premise of the Bible and the Christian life. It is very commonly said by many people, I know I should love this person. I know I should self-sacrificingly care about this person. But... You see, there's many people who can accept a truth in the Scripture, but they don't live and walk in that truth. Now, one of the most common ways that we stumble up in our Christian life is, quite frankly, the truth about ourselves. It is so common that we measure ourselves by what our parents thought of us. It's very common for at any stage of your lifespan that adults are living with all of their vigor so their father or their mother will finally say to them, you have done well. And absent those words from their parent, they live with a sense of defeat. They could have a college degree, they could have a technical degree. They could have worked hard. They could have saved money. They could have acquired a good life. They could have a PhD. But in anywhere along the line, what they're most looking for is for that parent to look at them and to say, you have achieved. And short of that, they feel like they're an utter failure. <clears throat> there are many of us along our journey of adulthood that are trying to, to, to be a better Christian, to follow Christ more, to imitate who Christ is, to let him transform our life. But yet, what we see in ourselves is every failure we've had in life, every stumble has been written down in our hearts and recorded down and we add those stumbles up and we come to a certain number and we say, Wow, Jesus saved me, but he can't possibly love me. He can't possibly care for me. He can't possibly help me overcome. We measure ourselves by the truth of how many times we stumble. But we don't measure ourselves by the greater truth 
of how many times Jesus reaches down and grabs our hand and helps us to stand up and holds us and says, we're going to start forward again. You know, this came home with me this week because um, some of you are MC and you know <clears throat> uh, my mother-in-law, Trisha's mother, she had a, a precipitous decline in health and weakness and and she felt like she was not going to get any better. And yet we would say to her, look at what you have done. That's an achievement. But what is she doing? She's measuring herself by a whole different set of truth. What we're seeing in these believers in this early church right here, the phrase, they're walking in the truth meaning that they are accepting what God says from the scriptures as truth in their life. They're not elevating themselves as they're perfect. They're not elevating themselves as they've got all of life together. They're elevating a relationship with a God who puts their life together. That no matter how messed up they become, they're walking in the truth. They're forcing their mind to focus on this truth. God is with me. My daughter, as you know, is youngest, is in PA school, and she tried hard as the exams came, as most those in any kind of study do. And she came out of an early exam, and she said, she said, Dad, I just, I failed. I failed horribly. She said, the instant score that popped up, she said it was 66. Benchmark is 80. She said, you know, suddenly you can hear her description. Her whole life is defined by this 66, and she has another test in two hours. And I said to her, Gabrielle, first off, there's not a person alive that hasn't failed. There's not one of us alive who haven't think we were doing the right things, the right study, and end up finding out it was the wrong things. There's not a person alive by that. Second, Gabriel, we have a God who is able to calm your heart and lift your spirit and focus your thinking. And that's the God we're praying for now to work in your life. And third, I would say to you, Gabriel, if there's any encouragement, it's this. When you're out practicing medicine, nobody's going to care if you made a 66 on this test. They care about how much good medical care you provide for them. And that's where your heart is, and that's what you can do. So. We prayed with her, and she was able to focus her thoughts. And then that next test, she, uh, I believe it was like an 88. And then she had one next day, and she did high in the 80s and that type of stuff. But you understand the struggle we have. I, you certainly have to struggle with this the same way I struggle with this. Surely you do. It doesn't matter if we accept the Word of God as truth if we're not walking in the truth and letting it transform our lives. 
That's what we're seeing in the early part of this letter, in these believers. And they are living out in their life, well, John uses the second phrase, a life worthy of God. And incorporated in that life worthy of God is that agape word, over and over. Sometimes it's used as beloved, which is another form of the agape. Sometimes it's just used as love translated, which is agape right there. But each one of those five times, it is. You are self-sacrificingly giving yourself to other believers in this church and ministering in their lives and caring about them. And they are self-sacrificingly working in your life and caring about you. This is what God intends for church to be. Now we come to diatrophies. There's one other word in Greek that relates to love, and it's philia, which is a kind of a brotherly love. You've, in, in America, Philadelphia comes from that, a city of brotherly love. <clears throat> in in the, the New Testament, it's often translated this way, that Diotrephes likes to be first. But when you get into the Greek, it is that philea, that brotherly love. So what you're saying here is this. Diotrephes in this church craves the affirmation of his brothers and wants to be first. One of the truths of life that I've observed is this. Everybody needs to be somebody sometime. Everybody needs to be somebody sometime. Church provides an environment where people who don't receive much recognition outside can suddenly elevate themselves to great heights inside the church. It provides that environment where, like Diostrophes, you can reject other people's authority. You can dominate other brothers in Christ. You can refuse letters from mature believers of the faith, which John is. You can intimidate believers in the church who want to listen to another mature believer in the faith. You can go so far as to kick those people out. Now, all of these things I just mentioned have, are, we usually summarize into one word, so keep it common, because this is common to this one word wherever you find it. Cult. That is very much what a cult is. You listen to me. I am the authority. Oh, yes, God's word is the authority, but... I have the understanding of this God's word. So I am the authority of God in interpreting this word to you. 
You don't need to listen to other people. And if you start listening to other people, then we've got to keep you at the end. And we don't want other people who are mature of the faith to influence. That is exactly what a cult is. It doesn't matter whether it's a Muslim cult, whether it's a Christian cult, whether it's a non-religious cult. That's exactly what a cult is. And unfortunately, within the church, nothing new is under the sun. The church provides an environment where people can present themselves and can use the right language, godly language. God would have this for you. I have a word of God for you. Here's what you need to do. Here's how you need to do this. And by the way, what we're doing to the Apostle John is right and noble because this is of God. Some of the deepest hurts I have ever experienced in my life have been within the church. By people who use very spiritual language, but it ends up being a very hurtful way. Do you see the contrast going on here from the beginning of John? That the truth of God is the truth, and that's what we're going to walk in. That we're going to self-sacrificingly love and support and encourage each other. And then at the end, Diosthenes, I am the authority. Nobody challenges me. Nobody threatens my authority. There's nothing new under the sun. And as that being nothing new... Now we come to the third part, ourselves. How do we respond in these authoritative, non-Christ-like ways? You see John's response here. He talks about imitating what is good. He affirms the brothers of Christ again for how they've welcomed and they're being a part of the spread of the gospel of Christ. The John you see here writing and saying these words is not the John who began this journey with Jesus. In Mark, <clears throat> it lays out the 12 disciples that are following Jesus, and it says that he, meaning referring to Jesus, he called James and his brother John the sons of thunder, now, I somehow don't think that was a compliment. <laughs> there probably was, in the nature of John and in James, his brother, a brashness, a forwardness, like thunder that just crackles and makes people jar. Um, uh, I, 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 I'll confess, I, I could often be that way. Tricia will interpret and say, uh, Curtis didn't mean what he said. This is what he's trying to say. So maybe I'm a son of thunder, you know. But that's what he referred to them as, a son of thunder. Now, we don't know the full encompass of every bit of that, but we know there is something bold in them that Jesus is seeing that needs to be more. And it's further confirmed in John's own recount in the gospel, or excuse me, in Matthew's account of James and John, in Matthew's uh, gospel. 
Later on in this journey of Jesus, James and John, their mother, came to Jesus and said, Hey, Jesus, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to um, summarize here for you, but hey, Jesus, this thing is expanding like wildfire, and you need some help. And you know who would make the best person on your right side and on your left side? My sons, James and John. We all need mothers like that. Now, we don't know if James and John put them up to it and said, Mom, you know, maybe you could go put in a good word with Jesus for us. We don't know. That's not recorded by Matthew. Just what happened. What is recorded is next. Jesus looked over at James and John and said, Well, it's going to require much if you want that position. Do you think you can handle that? And they respond, Well, as a matter of fact, Jesus, I really think we could do this. We can drink from the cup that you're going to drink from. And then he starts laying out more of what it's going to entail, giving up your life, giving up uh, your comfort, giving up your sacrifice, being out of control. Then John records in his recording of the life of Jesus about how he and James and Peter were at the uh, Mount of Olives praying with Jesus as Jesus was captured. And it records that Jesus, John, uh, John was there at the crucifixion of Jesus, looking up, and Jesus looking at him and saying, "This my mother Mary, she, she becomes your mother. Take care of her. And Mary, this becomes your son. He will take care of you. And he does. But what you see in the progression of John is from son of thunder and wanting positions of power and very self-confident to what we read at here in 3 John, which is a much, much later period of his life. Imitate what is good. I believe John is, is, would tell us further, that's what I did when I saw Jesus, is imitate what is good. There's something that's said in the scripture. Write this down. Go look at it later. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 13 through 22 are 15 very descriptive actions of what it means to imitate what is good. I understand we, we would say, well, Paul wrote 1 Thessalonians, so is this, but let's remember that in the early church, John is one of those discipling and maturing Paul in the faith. So Paul has learned this from James and John and Peter and the other disciples. Fifteen very descriptive phrases of what it means to imitate good in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 there. But there's one I'll center on right now. In everything, give thanks. In everything, give thanks. Now that phrase is often so misinterpreted because it means to say, you know, God, thank you that my house burned down. Thank you that 
I'm penniless. Thank you that the sheriffs are coming to evict me from my home. Thank you that I lost my job. Thank you that my health has deteriorated. You, in everything give thanks doesn't mean you're so grateful for every situation that happens in life. Do you understand what happens when we're giving thanks? When we are giving thanks to God, we're recognizing that God is far above all of this that's happening. We recognize that there is an eternity with God that far supersedes this that's happening. It's taken Tricia and I many decades and much focus in trying to walk in the truth to come to the realization that when this person has some disgruntled attitude with me, and they're a follower of Christ, I can respond lovingly and kind to them. Because if, even if it's another 20 years, that's a blink of the eye. For eternity, they're going to have a good time with me. So what does it matter? What does it matter if it's 20 more years? that this person doesn't want to talk to me. What does it matter if it's 20 years this person never wants to say, I forgive you, Curtis. I forgive you, Tricia. It was really me. What does it really matter in the grand scheme of things of eternity? And when I'm looking to God to say, you are above all of this, you are over all of this, I'm opening my heart up to God in thanks. Speak to me, God. And you know what God often speaks to me and to Tricia? Is how I need to change my heart more in line with his truth. And how I need to live a life more worthy of who he is. And it changes my entire focus from this irritation that's happening to his empowerment that transforms me. In everything give thanks. As John lays out the remainder of his letter here, that's what he's doing, is talking about imitating God and expressing deep appreciation for the way these brothers in the faith who are trying to walk in the truth, bring it in into their lives, they're trying to, to self-sacrificingly love each other the way, a way worthy to God. And he's expressing deep affirmation for that. There are three other facts there in 1 Thessalonians 5 that I'll just mention this morning that undoubtedly is also a part of John's thinking here. It's clear as we read this letter. Seek good to one another. I mean, if there was a man who has a position to say, take him out and crucify Diosthenes, and the, and the mob would rally around him, it's John. But he's not. Oh, he's dealing with the issue. He's dealing with the mis-authoritarianism taking place there in the church. And he plans on dealing with it more. 
But he's not demanding that everybody recognize, I am the ultimate authority. You know, it's funny about life. The more I have to demand I have authority, the less authority I have. The more I have to demand I'm the leader, the less of a leader I am. John is seeking good to one another. Another aspect of 1 Thessalonians there is hold fast to what is good. That's the imitating what is good. That what God has called me into my life is far above this irritation. doesn't minimize this irritation that Diospophes is throwing out here in the church. It doesn't minimize the danger of Diospophes and, and what's happening there with his so-called leadership. But John is holding fast to what is good in the truth of God, first with how I need to respond, and then how we collectively need to respond and to be a part of this. And the third thing there, I would say, from 1 Thessalonians 5, just you go and you'll read all 15 of these great examples of imitating good. But the third thing I would emphasize is this. Abstain from any form of evil. When you read John's response to Diosthenes, you have a man who followed Jesus, stood at the cross, watching Jesus' life flow from him, became the, the son of Mary, and Mary his mother, and he's not demanding any authority of himself. And he's not putting down Diosthenes. He's drawing back focus to who God is and the power of God to work in our lives. Abstaining from any form of evil. The worst evil in the world is when I, as a follower of Christ, say, it's okay for me to do wrong because that believer is more wrong. It's when I say, well, this word of God and how God directs me here is not so accurate. I shouldn't focus on it so much because this is such a dire situation. I have to act in this manner. That's evil. That's true evil. Because I've taken this God that I say, I honor you as my true God, and I believe you have wisdom to guide my life. I believe you are trying to lift me up from my stumbles, and I've put you on the side. And then I am becoming like Diostrophes. I'm using good, godly language, but it's not flowing from within me. And it's not worthy of God. So now we come to our destination again. Who irritates you? I don't want you to make a whole list. I would rather you make a list of people who you enjoy being around, who affirm you. But we do have to think sometimes. 
Who are the people that irritate us in life? Who are those? Now, two, what do you see in yourself? Not explaining away their irritation, not making excuses for them, but in your response to them. What do you see in ourselves? You know, we go back again to this thankful attitude. It is when I am thankful for this circumstance and this irritation that comes in my life, therein is an opportunity for God to help open my eyes to see how much am I walking in the truth within my own life. Or how much is it just some kind of head knowledge? How much am I, Curtis, really living worthy of God? Or is it just some kind of flowery words that I throw out there? So what do you see in yourself as you think of these people who irritate you much? Now, here's the four-squared focus. So here's an assignment for you as we're heading into Thanksgiving week. It's a good practice. It's something that God has brought to Tricia and I. For, we've been married 30 years in June, and it's something that God has brought to us for 30 years. And in the midst of many, many of our struggles, and it's this. Take time to thank other people for being a part of your life. Don't just take time to write it as a note to yourself. Don't just take time to contemplate it. Take an actual pen and a paper, not your phone and a text, and write down. I am thankful for you because through you, God has taught me this. So the four squared would be, look around here within this body right here. Who are four people here in Multiply Church that you could say, they don't know this. But the way they live, the way they act, the way they speak, it changes my life more worthy to God. So everybody look around. You know, nobody can feel awkward looking around. The front can look to the back. The back can look to the front. And while you're doing that, I'll say this. While John and Zach and I would always relish encouragement from you, pick four people other than Zach and John and I. Because God is using each of us as the body of Christ. That's what we see in, in the beginning part of 3 John. That's what it is to walk in the truth and live a life worthy of God. If you don't know somebody's name, if you don't know somebody's address, then come to Zach or John or me and we'll help you know their name. We'll help you know their address. But take the time to write down in that note to them. And there's good things that happen. One thing when you write it down, it immortalizes it. It makes it more firm in your heart. The second thing is the gift you give to that person. You see, 
Life is hard. And when you get a note like that, you need to kind of set it aside because in some future struggle of life, you're going to have to open up that note and read it again. And it's a fresh fragrance. And you've got to take it and rub it all over you again so the stink of life can dissipate in the fragrance of who God is. That's the benefit of a note. I mean, this is something we try to live. That's what we, every Thanksgiving, in the uh, entirety of our daughter's lives, that's what we have done, is to write a note to them. This is what we're thankful for you for over this past year and being a part of my life. So four in the church, four people outside the church. Now, I'm not very legalistic. So if, it's, if you want to do two square, that's five. If you want to do three square, that's five. If you want to do four square, the higher you go in writing these notes, you understand the more transformation is happening within you. No matter what you're facing and no matter how irritating people can be. But it does bring to mind this, because as I said, we wrote our daughters. Look, I love our daughters, but there is many a night where Tricia and I sat, sometimes with tears that we faced with them, and we said, let's just kill them and start over again. <laughs> there were many a times after we left their room and left the conference where we just said, I know up here the truth is I need to feed them in the morning, but I never want to see them again. <laughs> Nobody else has felt that way. Then you're not a parent, <laughs> okay? <laughs> All that is to say, these people who are irritating in our lives, they're hard to deal with. So one of these people you should write should be somebody who's irritating in your life. Let me give you an example. Music Stand 101, Walker Lane, New Market. Music, I thank God for you being a part of my life because your horrible attitude has taught me that I can have joy in spite of being around you. I don't think that would go over very well. <laughs> I think you would find more irritation. <laughs> but one of the ways, it's not the only way, but one of the ways God has taught me and Tricia as we've done this is to say, music, I thank God for you being in my life this year because through you, through you, I have come to know new depths of God's love and mercy for me. And I ask God to fill you with his peace and his joy and his mercy in your life. You see the difference? And I can testify to you the freedom God brings within my heart when I am willing to express thankfulness, I wish this person wasn't irritating. But when I look at what I see in myself, 
this person and this irritation has helped me to walk more worthy of the life in God and to walk more in truth. And it's transformed me so that now, instead of just praying that God pour judgment upon this person, now I'm praying, God, pour your grace on this person. Pour your peace on this person so much that this person will understand they can be transformed in you. That's what happens. So you have your list now. Who is irritating to you? How are you responding? What do you see in yourself? And four by four. I'm thankful for you. Here's what God's doing in my life through you. All of you as believers in Jesus Christ will find the abundant life that John finds as he's facing his irritations. And you'll find the abundant life to rise above and live in the joy of God. And so as we come this morning to have time to focus on the death of Christ, his body that was broken for us, his blood that was shed for us, so that we could have new life in Jesus. If you don't have a clue of what I'm talking about and you're sitting there wondering how can this all be possible? Come see Zach and John and I because you too can walk into a new life that is far from being new. It is abundant through the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ for us. Let's pray. Thank you, our God, that you never leave us as thunderous individuals, but you transform us into your joy and your peace. And thank you, God, that as hard as life is, as many irritating people come our way, that you can transform how we respond to them. Touch us with your spirit now as we remember your death and your resurrection. So that your spirit, God, will transform our hearts from how we are to how we can be, walking in your truth, living worthy of you, God, imitating what is good. Unto you, Jesus Christ, be glory, praise, 
and honor for answering our prayers. Amen.